Can I ask you a question, she said. Sure. Are you a monk, she asked. I am not, I replied. She stood there dumbfound as she eyed me and my cassock sitting at the terminal gate in Chattanooga. I could tell that she wanted to ask me another question, but I found it entertaining watching her search for the right words. What am I? I suggested. Yes, what are you? She asked. I'm an Episcopal priest, I said. And with a surprised look on her face, she responded, I didn't know Episcopal priests dressed like that. Most don't, I told her. At least not anymore. I think most clergy like to go incognito, and some are just lazy, I said. She laughed so heartily that everyone around us cracked a smile. She wandered back to her seat, but she quickly returned, wanting to know how I knew I was supposed to be a priest. I'm still trying to figure out if I am, I said. Not a little perplexed by my response, she continued, Well, why did you become a priest? I guess I couldn't imagine not becoming a priest, I said. Somewhat unsatisfied with my response, uh, she asked further, but, but why? What led you to become a priest? And to that I replied, love of God, love of the church, love of theology. That seemed to satisfy her, but as she returned to her seat, she said, I might come back. And almost immediately, she returned to ask me how I was supposed to be addressed. I said, my name is Billy, but if you're asking how to address me as a priest, I'm Father Daniel. Okay, Father Daniel, I got you, she said. And how do I address you, I asked. Well, she started, I'm not going to tell you what people call me, but my name is Ramona. Ramona sat back in her chair, awaiting her flight to Atlanta as I was. And just seconds later, Ramona came back and asked me, if you had to sum up in a single phrase what your purpose is in this world right now, what would you say? What would you say is your miss missions, she said. I had been thinking about this very thing a lot before Ramona asked her question, especially as I was on my return home from a quiet uh, couple of weeks in the mountains filled with silence. So after a brief pause, I looked Ramona in the eyes and I said to her to listen. I like that, she replied excitedly. Ramona went back to her seat, but as soon as she sat down, she leaned my way and said, I'm an exhortationist. My mission, she continued, is to encourage people. I just can't help myself, she said. Well, I feel encouraged already, I replied. Ramona smiled as she began to eat a sandwich she had purchased from the kiosk at the terminal, but which she ate as if it were a delicacy. I think one of the reasons I do wear my cassock around most places is the same reason most clergy do not. 
And that's because people come at come up to you and ask all sorts of things, all sorts of interesting questions. But strangely, I've never been asked if I were a monk. I guess I don't look much like an ascetic, but I had recently shaved my head, so I was looking perhaps a bit more austere. But the question Ramona ended up asking me, what she wanted to know in the first place, what am I, strikes me as a far better question than the one we so often ask, what do you do? What are you? The first person who asked me this question, what are you, had done so just that morning at a local coffee shop in Chattanooga as I was on my way to the airport. The barista behind the counter um, simply uh, inquired when she saw me and asked, or what are you? And I said, I'm a person. No, she said, gesturing to my cassock, what are you? As if that somehow altered her question. I told her I was an Episcopal priest, which similarly surprised her as it had Ramona. Oh, wow, she said, I've been attending an Episcopal church. Well, she continued, before COVID happened. Leslie would go on to tell me about how she grew up Presbyterian, but that she loved the liturgy of the Episcopal Church. She said that she found it reassuring. But then she said, I wish the sermons were longer. This preacher nearly spilled his coffee. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you know what I would like more out of church? A little more of the preaching. I could tell that uh, she didn't grow up Episcopalian. But then she went on to say that, I just kind of want to hear more. And I replied to her after hearing this, I said, you just made this priest's day. But what are you? It's a great question. We might give it a little more biblical force and ask it this way. Who do you say that you are? This is precisely the question that Paul is wrestling with in his letter to the Romans. What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be a Gentile? What does it mean to be a people under the law, a people outside the law? What are you? Several times throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul asks his readers, do you not know what you are? Or rephrasing the question, he asks something like, are you unaware of what you are? And here in chapter 12, Paul helps the Christians in Rome put two and two together, telling them that they are temples of the living God, that they are the body of Christ. And what each person is to be is a full participant in becoming Christ with the whole of the body. I know I don't often do this in my homilies, but I want to take a moment this morning and unpack some of what's going on here in this section of chapter 12. It's so rich and a cursory overview simply won't suffice. We have, as Paul articulates just in the first couple of verses, we have a natural nature, a rational nature that corresponds to the mind of Christ. 
earlier in chapter 7, Paul refers to this as the inner man or our inner person. But we often adapt, says Paul, we often adapt our outer person, our outer life, our work life, our home life, or basically everything outside of Sunday morning to the movements of the world rather than aligning our material engagement in the world with our true nature, our inner person, our hidden life in Christ. This life, says Paul, is brought to its perfection to the degree that we humbly perform our part as members of Christ's body. And, says Paul, it is this form, it is this pattern of life in the body of Christ, the church, to which our particular lives are to adapt. We are not to adapt ourselves to the ways of worldly commerce. Rather, we are to adapt everything about our lives to the way of our inner person, Christ. Patterned on Christ through the movement of the body working in concert together, we are empowered to move about the world in every aspect of our work, our homemaking, our political involvement, our everyday interactions with people on the street or what have you, as a people whose sensibilities are patterned on the love grace and forgiveness of God and Christ, the grace and forgiveness, the love who is Christ. And to the degree that we walk humbly with each other, doing our own part and letting others do their part, in other words, not trying to control everyone else, is the degree to which we begin to have the mind of Christ. This is what Paul is saying when he says for our intellect to be renewed. Our intellect is renewed bodily. Reflecting on this reality of our nature, our natural nature that Paul describes, St. Gregory of Nazianzen says that in creating us, God made us for contemplation. God made us to ponder the things of God and to see and understand everything in its primary relationship to God. We are contemplative beings. We need to think about God. So what does this look like? I've been reflecting on this over the past several weeks, and what has become increasingly clear to me is that everything about the Christian faith and life is only intelligible in the light of the cross. Now, this is not a new idea. This is axiomatic for Christians. But I think what needs to be made explicit today is how this works itself out in human community. What the cross of Christ reveals is a way of love that is neither defensive nor competitive. The cross is the absolute 
rejection of competition as a good. And it is the total affirmation that my life is not my own and that my life is for those who are not me, ultimately for God. I can, therefore, only know who or what I am from the heart of the cross and from those who even may seek to hang me on it. This is also to recognize that my life is more than what I know. I cannot understand what I am apart from who others might say that I am. And it is at the cross where I meet what I do not own and learn to live from it. I am not my own. I don't own myself. I am not the center from which I am to live. And in becoming aware of the reality that I do not even own myself is the first step to realizing that I cannot own anyone else or determine how God is made manifest in the lives of others. The cross teaches us that if we are owned by anyone, it is God. But it also teaches us that even God, the God who does not compete or control, opens divinity to be known by humanity. This is why Paul will say that what we really are, what is most natural to us, is the mind of Christ. And to have the mind of Christ, says Paul, is to meet each day and to meet each person as one that I do not own, with whom I do not have to compete and to learn to live my life from who they are. This is what it means to be the body of Christ. I cannot know who I am without knowing who you are. I cannot know who I am without knowing as I am known by the way of the cross. This means that I become less myself, less of a person, when I impose myself on others, when I seek to control my life or theirs. But the more open I am to receiving my life from others, the more readily I receive my life as one crucified with Christ. Only then does Christ become fully alive in me, for only then have I truly taken up my cross and died to self, so that, so that the life I live is no longer for myself, but for Christ who died for me.